0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discussed the state of City Hall, talked crosswords and cruciverbalism, and learned about the ladies of the Black Church. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCY-FM, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for December Eighteenth, Two 2020. Mario Smith spoke to 20th Ward Alderman Jeanette Taylor about the state of Chicago politics after a chaotic year. In a no-holds-barred interview, Taylor blasted the Lightfoot administration, expressed doubts over the city's new budget, and questioned why CPS is trying to force kids back into classrooms. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m.
1: She joins us today on the show. Alderman Taylor, what's happening?
2: How are you this afternoon?
1: I am all kinds of good. It is, again, it is really good to see your face. And I have been wanting to chat with you for a while. I have so many questions. At the time... Inglewood was facing a, a not 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 major crises, but crises. And you along with my buddy G2 Brown had been doing a lot of work in in the in the community doing things on behalf of Inglewood and on behalf of Chicago in general. What was it what was the tipping point for you that made you say I need to get further involved in in, in, in this city and run for alderman? Um us, pres-
2: President Barack Obama told me, no, we were fighting for a community benefits agreement and we wanted to make sure that people lived around the center were protected because we know that anytime large development comes to a community, it gets gentrified and you push out the low income and working families. And so they had a meeting down uh, at the McCormick place. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother had a stroke that night and so I wasn't able to sleep outside. Um and when I went back um somebody held my place in line we got in there and the gentleman from the foundation um Michael said that we would be able to ask the foundation questions and I was chosen to ask that question and so I had no idea that president the first black president of the United States was going to be on the screen and when he came up I basically said to them hey um I'm excited you're going to get a presidential center or a library or whatever it is but what about a community benefits agreement and he goes and starts to tell me he was a community organizer. He took folks from Argyle Garden to CHA to protest that, blah, 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 blah. But no. Um, if we sign something with you, there'll be community groups coming out the woodwork. And I'm looking at him like, the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization is a 50-year-old organization. Who are you talking about?
1: <laughs> what woodwork? A
2: made-up organization y'all made up. It's just, it's about. Who are you talking about? And so honestly, him telling me no and me tired of Electing people who make one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, who get free dental, who have great health insurance, and don't come and ask me what I think or what I want to see until it's election time again. Mm. And so, the, my last three predecessors um, have been to jail. And so,
1: yes, they have.
2: <laughs> it was a decision of I don't look good in orange. Um, <laughs> they don't have. I still have my Bologna in jail. And so, can I do this? and make real change that happens with my community. And so when I got when I originally got into the race, I didn't expect to win. There were 21 people who circulated petitions. There were 19 that turned in. Nine folks stayed on the ballot. There were two, and I was blessed to be picked the one.
1: Let me ask you a couple of other things before I, I spread these questions out to everyone else. Um, what is the status of the, the agreement with the community and the Obama Center at the moment?
2: So we got the Woodline Housing Ordinance um, that the city's Department of Housing and members from around the community worked on. Um, It's not perfect. Um, I would ask for way more. It's a step in the right direction. And so it doesn't stop gentrification. It slows it down. And so we still have some more work to do to make sure that this community is protected and that they have access to the job and they have access to the spaces to, to start to have their businesses. Mm-hmm. And so we still got more work to do, but making sure that a lot of the city owned land in the community is for affordable housing. Make sure that we put money in a trust for people in the ward so they can get improvements on their home. I've got a population of seniors who own their home That's and true. can't afford um, any property taxes increase, can't afford anything else, but definitely won't be able to afford the upkeep. So putting money in that, making sure that there is access for folks who want to purchase homes, who don't make over fifty thousand to have access to, to home ownership, and so it's not a perfect ordinance. It's a right. It's a step in the right direction.
1: Your first year as alderman, the city gets hit with coronavirus. The world gets hit with coronavirus. Mm. You're in this new situation with this really progressive and some would say aggressive city council. Mm-hmm. Brand new mayor, mm-hmm. along with this brand new council. We, we will fast forward to budget time. The budget is drawn up and she says something that absolutely got you and a lot of other aldermen, not just Black Caucus aldermen, a little fired up. And that was, if you don't make a deal with me, don't ask me for mm-hmm. sugar honey iced tea. She said it. You then said what I I can tell you now because I don't know if I get a chance to tell you the quote of the year. In my opinion was, "Don't give me crumbs and call it cake." That's right." in response to her saying that the budget gets passed mm-hmm. how how is it How is your dealing now with her after all of that? She was saying she was going to make an attempt to to reconcile with the folks who didn't vote on her ordinance or on the budget. She was too quote shy of basically losing a lot of ground that she may or may not have perceived or imagined build up. What what is your what is your relationship with the mayor like right now? And budget gets passed. How are you guys working with her, if at all, to make this equitable for folks?
2: So we have a very um interesting relationship. Um, it is hard being a black woman in politics. Um, it is definitely hard for people who have indulged in politics over their career remember I came from community organizing right so really my only interaction with um elected officials was basically going off on them about what they don't do in our community
1: (laughs) I've seen you in action (laughs) I know (laughs) so actually
2: I call and check on her when I see her at events we're very sociable I text her because I am concerned about her health this is not easy for any of us um and I care about her as a woman and as a woman of color I do Mm -hmm. And so there are texts between us when I'm checking on her, I'm making sure she's okay. And we've had conversations since what, um, after she said, don't ask me for she did call and apologize and just was like, I'm tired of people saying that they're going to do one thing and then they vote against, you know, what they said they were going to do. And she gave a couple of examples. And clearly I understood that. Um, We disagree on policies. We come from different spaces. My lived experience tells me Um, how my politics should go. I come from the movement. And so I move according to the people. I clearly understand who I work for. And so there has not been any backlash. There has not been any punishment. Um, But I'm I'm not really concerned because I'm going to advocate and fight for my community. And the best thing that's going for me is my community backs me up on the decisions because I don't make decisions without them. I put out a survey to ask my community, do you want your property taxes raised? Do you want to increase on fines? I ask. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm an organizer. I organize around what the community wants to see. And so I've got no backlash. There hasn't been anything of that. And actually, we're going to check in with each other soon because we do it on a monthly basis.
1: One more thing really quick before I hand this over. With that in mind, there's also an issue, as we saw the uprisings this past summer, this has been one hell of a year. As we saw Love Rises this past summer, we saw um, the city really put a concentrated effort to protect the Central Business District, and not so much of an effort to protect anything outside of the Central Business District. And for the uninitiated, that's downtown. Um, and the Defund the Police question, or, 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 or query, came up. Uh, you were on Ergo with my buddies uh, Daniel Kissinger and my man, Damon Williams, mm-hmm. and you were asked by the communities uh, uh, they they recommended policies that they thought might work. Um, the defund the, the police argument being one of those, or the, mm-hmm. the, the displacement of funds for the police, what is your stance on that in, in, in dealing with the mayor and the Chicago Police Department?
2: You've seen over the last 20 to 30 years the increase of the police budget, but we're no safer in our communities. And so police don't make us safe. And so what we have to do is have real conversation about what policing actually does. So really all they did was take the 600 vacant positions <coughs> that they weren't using and said, that's defunding the police. But if you look around the country, every major city has done something to correct the police. We're still behind on the dissent decree. And so mm. I'm, not, I'm not convinced that this administration um, is going to do anything to fix the broken system of policing. It's just not gonna happen. And you can't retrain hate. You cannot Mm. train racism and hate. And that's exactly what this police department has done. Think about this. In the history of killing black and brown folks, there's only been one officer ever convicted and tried and sent to jail for the killing of a black man. And we are talking about since Emmett Till. And so we got a real problem with this racist system that we continue to feed. And what we don't talk about is who is employed in these police, um, in the police department? The majority of the folks are folks who are white. Let's just call it what it is. It's not up. And so we're not going to make folks of non-color struggle. We are not gonna let them figure out how, we had to figure out how to stretch and stretch a dollar. I know what it's like to feed my children and go to bed home. Right. White counterparts, not so much. And that's because the system is created to make sure they're taken care of and say to hell with us. Just so call it what it is. and See, we won't even have these conversations. We so scared to talk about race. Oh, you can't talk about it. Why? When I can't walk down the street and be a black woman and be okay. And if I call the police on somebody, I'm looked at as guilty, especially if there is a person of non-color. And so let's talk about this system that's been created to destroy our humanity. And we haven't fixed it, we refuse to. And let's be honest, what is Lori Lightfoot, she a cop? We don't, we we won't even say that. We won't even talk about it, but she is what she is.
0: John and Jamie chatted with Brendan Emmett Quigley, the most published crossword creator in America. Quigley discussed why crosswords are suddenly hip again, revealed how a hundred-year-old art form is finding new creators, and credited Will Shorts for a sea change in the world of puzzles. Radio Free Bridgeport returns Tuesdays in 2021 at 4 p.m.
3: We've got a great guest here, Brendan Quigley, with us to talk about a long career in puzzles, particularly crosswords, and and Brendan, thanks for joining us.
4: Hey,
5: happy to be here.
4: (coughs) Brendan, can you start with a little bit about your background? It's not every day, first of all, it's not every day we get to talk to anybody about crosswords, uh, except for my wife. And it's not every day we meet someone that actually makes crosswords. It's a kind of an unusual career. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into it? I guess it was just something I've always been into.
5: Uh, I got into puzzles really early as a kid. Uh, In kindergarten, for example, um, art class basically meant being given a massive uh, 11 by 17 sheet of paper and big fat crayons and then with the instruction of draw whatever you want and all the other boys were drawing like tanks and dinosaurs and me and my friend John Glickman we drew these mazes and when i say mazes i'm not talking like just mazes we're talking like like labyrinths like crazy uh you know we we just said you know the hell with these these big fat crayons and we're going to take the pencil and sharpen it as as sharp as we possibly can so that there's like a little tiny fine point at the end and draw these ridiculous mazes that were so intricate at least for like a six uh you know a six-year-old and um yeah so i guess i started right back then and and uh ever since then you know just i i uh you know would sort of look at whatever puzzle magazines were out there uh games was a huge influence i didn't really understand a lot of these uh puzzles they were sort of over my head um especially the word ones but uh really found like the visual there were so many visual puzzles and sort of logic puzzles that uh just excited me and i guess i would sort of look at the issue Uh, and this is, this is not in kindergarten now, this is like in grade school, but I would look at an issue and then I'd be like, well, I wonder if I could make something similar to whatever I just looked at. And I'd make like a really like, you know, elementary version of these puzzles. And, uh, you know, this sort of kind of went on until, I don't know, I guess I took a break from it at some point. I still kept solving puzzles, but uh, I really got into crosswords in, uh, college. I had a job working at a, um, uh, law firm where I photocopied, uh, cases. This was in the nineties back when, you know, people still had Pitney bows, (laughs) you know, machines, uh, uh, big massive photocopiers. And, uh, you know, my summers would be spent, you know, photocopying these cases. And, um, Going into my senior year, uh, they sort of put a crack down on everyone and said, Listen, we got to make this a little more professional. We can't have you like listening to music and like hanging around and looking like, you know, you're just sort of waiting for work. We want you to like look professional. And so, you know, they sort of tightened up ship. And I was just like, Well, what am I going to do for like eight hours to pass the time? So I, I would photocopy the Times crossword. See, I had been doing games all my life and I knew that Will Shorts who had been part of games magazine from the beginning, practically had just taken over the times crossword. I figured, well, I'm sort of familiar with his work. Let me try see if I can get into crosswords. And then after a summer of doing those every day, terribly, I might add, I barely ever finished them. But one thing did happen is that I did get hooked. And so, um, going into my senior year, uh, my, uh, my, my, semester was classes on Monday and Wednesday and then the rest of the week off. Uh, and none of them started before one in the afternoon. So I had lots of time on my hands and I figured, all right, what the hell? Let's see if I can even make one of these things. Sort of a throwback to when I was a little kid and, you know, seeing if I could sort of make my own version of these puzzles I enjoyed. And, uh, through stupid luck, the first one I ever made had enough rookie mistakes in it that were easily fixable for Will to fix, and therefore I sold the first one I ever made uh, to the New York Times. Uh, the next three were rejected, but uh, uh, but there it was. So that was a really long-winded answer, right?
3: But a good I, one. I similarly was confounded though by puzzles when I was younger. Um, as you were, I didn't ultimately sell anything to the New York times, but I was confounded with the first, I guess it wasn't really a puzzle, but it was, um, the, uh, the calculator. Um, and, uh, and, and my solution to not knowing what an abacus was, was to, of course, in third grade, just put it in my pants and take it home.
4: That's a good idea. I'm, I'm glad though, Brendan, you mentioned Games Magazine and you mentioned that you also thought it was over your head because I had a similar experience. I read that magazine when I was a kid and half of it I didn't understand and I thought I was just the dumbest kid in school. So I, I do appreciate that. Um, you, I believe, are one of the most published crossword creators though in the Times right now. Isn't that correct? You've been doing this for a long time.
5: Yeah. I think if you do anything for like 25 or so years, you're going to, you know, uh, you know, rack up accolades, I guess. So yes, I have been doing this uh, for a while now. Um, I don't, I think the last time I checked, that was like the seventh most published under Will's editorship. Um, yeah. I mean, I've been doing this for a very long time.
4: <laughs> it's Well, I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, you know, you, there is, I, I think for people that don't look at crosswords or, or aren't into crosswords, um, I don't think people realize there's an entire kind of crossword community. I mean, you have your own website and you, you put out puzzles for free to the public a couple times a week. Uh, and you're not alone. There's now a huge indie scene of people that are putting puzzles on their website whether it's ross trudeau or amanda rafkin uh stella zaskatowski uh, there's even there's crossword blogs people review crosswords which to me is ab- about as strange i guess in a sense as as reviewing any other pastime you know what i mean but can you maybe talk a little <clears throat> bit about that that culture because i i think it seems so um i'm, I'm sure it's foreign to a lot of our listeners. I mean. Who the heck knew that there's something called X-Word Info with word lists and and daily reviews of other people's crosswords? It seems a strange thing.
5: Well, it is a strange thing. But, I mean, uh, the Internet, you know, is uh, just uh, chock-a-block with uh, weird things. I think, you know, in some ways it's sort of brought the Internet just sort of brought uh, like-minded people into the same, you know, arena, Right. Like, for instance, if we were both into, I don't know, say, collecting, uh, you know, discontinued cereal boxes from the 1980s, I could go to the Internet and find, like, an entire wing of people who are also doing the exact same thing, and we can all, like, geek out about it. And so, um, yeah, so Crossroads are really no different than that. Uh, These are just enthusiastic people who and creative people uh, who have a lot of opinions about things. And, uh, you know, in some ways, these websites are, uh, you know, sort of incubators for uh, new talents, trying out puzzles that can't be done in a in a mainstream publication or just, uh, you know, an outlet for, uh, you know, creative people to just share uh work and and find uh alternate ways to uh, entertain i mean it, it, the world nowadays uh you know content is king so i think a lot of people not just i mean in any field really just like to go you know directly to the consumer or in this case the solver
4: are are there things though that are prohibited? i mean for, uh, aside from the obvious which i think would be swear words but are there topics and things you can't do in, say, the New York Times crossword?
5: Uh, well, if you wanted to do something multimedia, that'd be uh, one, for example. That'd be an easy one. Like if you had some sort of uh, uh, maybe like a <clears throat> mini movie to watch or something that may tie into whatever puzzle you're doing, you couldn't do that in a, you know, a, a dead tree edition. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could, you know, obviously certain t- words. Uh, Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's probably other examples, but I can't think of one off the top of my head, you know. Um,
3: does the, the, you know, you are talking about the indexing or the archiving of all of that material. Does that change the way that, not change the way that you approach a single puzzle, but I, I guess in some ways you have to be mindful of, of the archive of, of, yeah, you have to constantly be creating fresh material, I'm guessing. Oh, definitely. I mean,
5: <clears throat> yeah, definitely. You you want to try to find a new spin on something. I mean, it's inevitable that if you ask people to create something and there's like a specific set of rules that you have to follow that and, and, and a finite set of things that you can draw from, you're going to eventually have some similarities. Look at like pop songs. You know, we're constantly reusing the same chord progressions and they're all songs about love, so I mean, there's a lot of similarity in there. But you know, you find your new spin on it. So yes, there is some overlap, but uh, yeah, it, it is a lot easier with indexing and and whatnot to uh, sort of see. Oh, I'm I'm you know mining similar uh, territory, so I should probably find a new spin on this concept. So,
4: and you mentioned that you know, I think back in your last qu- answer, you you talked about. The fact that the internet has brought a lot of new constructors. Um, you know, when I used to do the New York Times crossword, it seemed to be very, um, before Will took it over anyway, kind of hidebound and full of a lot of strange words that only existed in crosswords. And I do see now many more bylines uh, from women, uh, people from different backgrounds, minorities. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Has is that because there is now this internet community of crossword constructors and solvers? I can't
5: help but think it, it's uh, it's got to be. I mean, um, the, everyone. It's it's a such a small community of of very curious, very uh, uh, it, you know, I don't want to say I don't want to sound like snooty, but you know, smart people who like and creative. And there, there's a lot of uh, avenues for people to uh, reach out to and 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 seek help. I mean, I, I just did a, another podcast with someone and we were talking about this. I can't think of any other, uh, industry where if you're doing something creative, like say you're writing a book or you're, you know, you're making a movie, you can't like reach out to people who are already established in the field and say, Hey, can you give me a hand here with this, uh, creative project? But it seems like with crosswords, I mean, yeah, they're not, yes, it's not as highbrow as, as like making a movie or, or whatnot. Uh, but uh, it is a creative venture, and people are willing to spend the time and sort of give feedback and sort of uh, nurture new talent. Uh, so yes, I do think the internet is is hugely uh, a part of that. Hmm. That's an interesting, and, point. and I think because it, it is online, it tends to be a younger audience.
6: Hey am my producer, are you sick? No, it's allergies. Ah, jeez, you sound like the Trekkers after a three-day marching powder binge. Ugh, I know, it's awful. I know, a guys. Kyle, have
7: you noticed how many episodes start with, I know a guy, or this dude over here?
6: Uh, no, what's your point?
7: You've never noticed anything weird? Uh, no. Like, I... I don't have a recorder, and yet these episodes keep appearing. And we seem to keep moving from... Ugh, jeez. Scenario to scenario. I, I I, mean, do you ever wonder if we're, like, inside a simulation or something?
6: Huh, no, everything seems all right. I mean, uh, we beat the digital land in that simulation back in that Size Seismata 71, and, and that was, like, 17 episodes ago, if I can do Matt right. I mean, that's what I mean. We keep talking in episodes and making... References no one cares about? Listen, and... Jess, I got what's gonna cure your allergies, I swear. Now you <sighs> gotta come see this guy. I'm just...
7: This is just gonna be a mess of sound effects and then a jump cut.
6: <laughs> Do you see what I mean? I mean, how did we even get here? I, we, we walked the entire way from the copro. Uh, you got a burrito at Martinez, and I didn't even get a bite, so don't even... Oh, you
7: yeah, I still have that half in my pocket.
6: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
7: hand-warming burrito.
6: Anyway, this is Pooper's place. Uh, Everyone in Undertown swears by him. His name is what? I don't know, like Steve or something, but uh, we all could call him poopers. You'll see why. I'm
7: not super sure about this, Kyle. Oh, whoa, 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 what
8: is that smell? That is the medicines. Hey, poops, what's oh going on? God, it smells like Sasquatch's socks dyed in That's here. the natural medicines. My producer, he has got some allergies. Maybe you could, uh... The eye. allergies of Bridgeport. Yes, the dab and the trees and the bowl. Ugh!
7: Seriously, what is that smell?
8: It is a secret substance blended right here of all natural excretions. Yes,
6: I'm telling you, I had cancer and poop was he cleared it right up. I cannot believe that.
8: Let me just smear a little of this here and here under your nostrils. Just breathe deep.
6: Oh, it smells awful. That's the medication. Oh, I think I'm going to
7: puke. Oh, my God. Oh. Oh. Hey. Wait a minute. I stopped sneezing.
8: You just put a little of this on your lip every morning for a few minutes and no more allergies. What's in it? It's a proprietary blend. I can't believe more people don't
6: use these natural methods. I hate that this is
7: working.
8: I just wish we could spread the message to more people. Well, maybe we can.
7: Do you think this is really a good idea?
6: Well, Pooper says this is the way he gets the immunity hurts. Uh,
7: by smearing whatever this gross gunk is under people's
6: doors? It's genius. Everyone touches it, they get the immunity. I, I'm just not sure. You're so pedestrian. We're going to be hailed as heroes. I, I'm just not sure. Listen, you take a couple bags of this, and I'll take a couple bags of this, and we'll start hitting these door handles. But is
7: this really dog sh- Not entirely. Oh my god, I'm gonna be sick. No, you're not. Your allergies are solved.
4: This week on The Trump Diaries. The Electoral College confirms Biden without incident, violence flares at several pro-Trump rallies, Trump continues to claim fraud and rages at Georgia, Russians hacked multiple government departments, Barr quits and Trump turns on McConnell as deaths pass 300,000 in America. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 1422, December 11th, all 50 states in the District of Columbia have certified their presidential results. The Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Chairman Ron Johnson, however, announced he would hold a hearing on election irregularities on December 16th, two days after the college cast its votes. The four states targeted by Texas in a last chance appeal to the Supreme Court implored those justices to dismiss the effort to overturn the results. Calling it a seditious abuse of the judicial process, the states argued that Trump's enablers are trying to create a, quote, surreal alternate reality. In fact, no constitutional provision, no statute, and no principle of law gives one state the standing to challenge another state's handling of an election. COVID continues its relentless grip on the United States. The U.S. recorded more than 3,100 deaths in a single day, exceeding a record set just one week earlier. 300,000 Americans have now died from COVID. More of a third of Americans now live in areas where hospitals have fewer than 15% of intensive care beds available. One in 10 Americans in the Midwest, South, and Southwest live in areas where the beds are full. The daily death toll from the coronavirus in the United States for the next two to three months will be greater daily than the toll of terror attacks on 9-11. This, according to the Centers for Disease Control, Director Robert Redfield. Again, from Redfield's record, he is forecasting 600,000 Americans will be dead by February. In an explosive allegation, the editor-in-chief of the weekly report from the CDC told Congress she was ordered to destroy an email showing that political appointees attempted to spike that publication because they were worried it made Trump look bad. Dr. Charlotte Kent said she believed the order came directly from Dr. Redfield. After her testimony to the House, the Trump administration abruptly canceled four more interviews with top CDC scientists and officials. A U.S. government advisory panel has endorsed Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine. The FDA is expected to follow that recommendation. The group concluded the shot appears safe and effective against the coronavirus in people 16 and older. The White House then ordered the FDA commissioner to grant emergency use authorization for the vaccine by the end of the day or resign. Trump called the FDA a big, old, slow turtle for not approving the vaccine faster and pressured Commissioner Stephen Hahn to, quote, get the damn vaccines out now stop playing games, and start saving lives. Meanwhile, new unemployment claims rose to 853,000 last week, the highest level since September. Continuing claims jumped by 230,000 to 5.76 million. That is the first increase since August. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer rejected the administration's $916 billion relief proposal. The Trump plan offered pared down unemployment benefits in exchange for $600 stimulus checks. It also did not give aid to cities and states. And in a major international development, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has told the British cabinet and party to prepare for a no-deal Brexit, saying the European Union's current offer is unacceptable. Johnson also publicly claimed the EU had changed its negotiating position in the past two weeks. Sticking points have revolved around fishing limits and standards for goods. The prospect of a no-deal Brexit is considered a worst-case scenario and is expected to have a deeply damaging economic impact on both blocs. 1423, December 12th, the Supreme Court in a summary judgment rejected a long shot attempt by the state of Texas to overturn the results in the states of Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin and Arizona. In an unsigned opinion, the court said Texas lacked standing. The FBI issued at least one federal subpoena for records from the office of the man who filed that lawsuit, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. Aides allege that Paxton may have been committing crimes that include abuse of office and bribery. Paxton faces a five-year-old indictment on felony securities fraud charges. Paxton said he has not discussed a presidential pardon with the White House, calling that suggestion ridiculous. Trump attacked Attorney General William Barr on Twitter for not violating Justice Department policy to publicly reveal an investigation into Hunter Biden during the election. Trump claimed that Barr, quote, should be fired by the end of business today, and he called him a big disappointment. Why didn't Bill Barr reveal the truth to the public before the election about Hunter? Joe was lying in the debate stage that nothing was wrong or going on. Press confirmed big disadvantage for Republicans at the polls. Meanwhile, Russian intelligence is said to have hacked into a range of key government networks, including the Treasury and Commerce departments, and had free access to their email systems. That attack is said to be the most sophisticated and perhaps among the largest attacks on federal systems in the past five years. The attack is said to have exploited a flaw in a complex piece of network management software made by a company called SolarWinds. Also, the Senate approved a $741 billion defense authorization bill by a veto-proof margin. Trump made multiple threats he would veto the measure on the bizarre grounds that it did not strip Section 230 protections from internet companies. A new report says shoplifting is up markedly in America, but what is notable is what is being taken. Experts say it is overwhelmingly staples like bread, pasta and baby formula. The thefts are at higher levels than in past economic downturns, signaling the great pain the pandemic is placing on out-of-work Americans. The Department of Agriculture, which was recently forced by a judge to stop a plant curb on food stamps, says 54 million Americans will struggle with hunger this year. That is one in six of all American citizens day 1424, December 13th, thousands of Trump supporters marched in Washington and several state capitals this weekend protesting what they falsely claimed was a stolen election. At least five people were seriously injured after those protests degenerated into riots in both DC and Olympia, Washington. 23 people were arrested demonstrators, who included many members of the far-right Proud Boys group, chanted four more years and vowed not to recognize Biden as president-elect. The leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, was apparently invited to the White House prior to those protests. Trump also flew a helicopter over the protests and waved to the people below. Those protesters apparently went on to attack several black churches in Washington, D.C. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office interviewed employees at Trump's lender and insurer as his investigation into the Trump Organization accelerates. Prosecutors interviewed employees at Deutsche Bank, which has loaned more than $300 million to Trump, and at Aon, an insurance broker which has worked with the Trump Organization. Notably, Trump will lose his protection from criminal prosecution when he leaves office. Trump is also trying to halt the defamation lawsuit filed by E. Jean Carroll, asking a judge to stay that case while the Justice Department appeals a decision that the Justice Department can't represent Trump because he wasn't acting in his official capacity as president when he denied raping Carroll. Day 1425, December 14th the Electoral College voted to confirm Joe Biden as the 46th President of the United States. The Supreme Court tartly rejected Trump's final long-shot attempt to invalidate the will of the people. Republicans in the House are now eyeing January 6th, that is the official day that Congress certifies that vote as a possible place to challenge Biden's win. The plan, being mooted by Mo Brooks, who is a Republican of Alabama, is almost certain to fail as Democrats control the House. In Michigan, a lawmaker was punished for suggesting there may be violence at the meeting of electors. That representative, named as Gary Eisen, told a radio host he would participate in a protest that he termed dangerous after publicly claiming the legislature should strip votes from Biden. Biden won that state by 150,000 votes and Attorney General Barr suddenly resigned. His resignation was not entirely unexpected. He had signaled he would leave as it became apparent Trump's long-shot tactics to stay in power would fail. Barr, who was one of Trump's biggest enablers, was widely seen as politicizing the Department of Justice to a level not seen since the days of J. Edgar Hoover. The United States administered the first shots of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine to healthcare workers. A nurse in Queens, New York received the first dose on these shores. Federal officials now expect 20 million people to get the first of two required doses by the end of the month and have 100 million people in total immunized by the end of March. Trump tweeted, first vaccine administers, congratulations USA, congratulations world. Day 1426, December 15th. Republicans peeled away from Trump in the wake of yesterday's Electoral College balloting. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell led a group of Republicans who congratulated Joe Biden publicly, essentially abandoning Trump's assault on the outcome of the vote. Trump, of course, continues to refuse to concede the election. His press secretary, Keely McGonaghy, today claimed the Electoral College vote was, quote, just one more step in a continuing process. McConnell also reportedly told Republicans in private not to join members of the House in objecting to the election results on January 6th. McConnell said on the call that this would require Senate Republicans to vote down those objections and that this is a terrible vote because it would make Republicans appear anti-Trump. In other words, McConnell doesn't want Republican senators to have to vote against the idea that millions of votes should be overturned so Trump can be kept in power illegally and illegitimately. Trump responded by repeating his false claims on fraud, tweeting, quote, tremendous evidence pouring in on voter fraud. This is false. Trump also shared a news article about Mo Brooks of Alabama's efforts to protest on the 6th, raising the possibility he could begin pressuring members of the party to join in, stoking an even bigger fight in the weeks ahead. And a top Trump appointee repeatedly urged top health officials to adopt a herd immunity approach to COVID-19 and allow millions of Americans to be infected by the virus. The email from the then science advisor Paul Alexander claimed, quote, There is no other way. We need to establish herd, and it only comes about allowing the non-high-risk groups expose themselves to the virus, period. Who cares if infants, teens, kids, young people, young adult, middle-aged with no conditions get infected? We want them infected. Alexander also argued that colleges should stay open to allow COVID infections to spread. Trump has repeatedly denied herd immunity was his administration's goal. And the FDA confirmed that Moderna's two-dose COVID-19 vaccine was highly effective and safe for adults, setting it up for emergency authorization later this week to become the country's second authorized COVID shot. The FDA said the vaccine is 94.5% effective at preventing COVID cases. Day 1427, December 16th. Trump demanded that Barr's successor Jeffrey Rosen appoint a special prosecutor to go after Hunter Biden. He also asked aides if he could appoint one himself. Trump is also seeking to appoint a special counsel to dig into his own unfounded claims that Biden and the Democrats pulled off a massive voter fraud conspiracy against him. The White House counsel's office strongly advised Trump not to fire FBI Director Christopher Wray after the election because it could put him in potential legal jeopardy. White House lawyers told Trump that firing Ray could be seen as retaliation because Trump had publicly pressured him to take specific actions on investigations. Trump is reportedly furious that Ray would not open investigations into the Bidens. The Trump administration is now negotiating with Pfizer to secure more coronavirus vaccines this spring. That comes despite the company's warning that worldwide deals have locked in hundreds of millions of doses through the summer. Trump repeatedly turned down chances and offers to buy more doses this winter, baffling Pfizer. And the U.S. Postal Service released Postmaster General Louis DeJoy's calendar following a Freedom of Information Act request from House Democrats. The calendar released from June 15 to November 7th is almost entirely redacted. Day 1428, December 17th. Trump is apparently diverting 75% of donations to the Georgia Senate runoff elections to his own new Save America Political Action Committee. That fund has been called a slush fund with analysts who noted it has almost zero transparency on how money is spent. The other 25% is now going to the Republican National Committee. Republicans have noted their two candidates in that state for the January runoff are being well outspent. The scope of a hack apparently engineered by a Russian premier intelligence agency has become clear. The State Department, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Pentagon were all apparently compromised. The attack is being called one of the greatest intelligence failures of our era, and this comes after billions of dollars were spent on cyber infrastructure. After a classified briefing, some senators came out and explicitly blamed Russia for the hack, with Dick Durbin calling the cyber attack, quote, virtually a declaration of war. Trump's neighbors in Florida are seeking to enforce a decades-old compact that says Mar-a-Lago, Trump's private social club, cannot be used as a full-time residence. Neighbors of Mar-a-Lago sent a letter to the town of Palm Beach and the U.S. Secret Service complaining that Trump has violated a 1993 agreement he made with that town that allowed him to convert the property to a money-making club. The agreement says specifically no member of the club could stay on the property for seven consecutive days a year and no more than 21 days a year. The lawyer's letter also notes, quote, the significant tax breaks Trump received for this arrangement remain in effect, as does the use agreement. Betsy DeVos urged career employees at the Education Department to, quote, be the resistance when Biden takes over next month. During a department-wide virtual meeting to discuss the transition, DeVos told employees, quote, let me leave you with this plea. Resist. Be the resistance against forces that will derail you from doing what's right. DeVos has been notably inept in her stewardship of the education department. And Dutch prosecutors believe a security researcher hacked Trump's Twitter account in October, despite earlier denials from the White House and Twitter. Hacker Victor Gevers, who claimed to have guessed Trump's password and breached his account, was not charged with a hack as he reported it immediately. The password was MAGA2020. The Trump Diaries will return in 2021.
0: Chuck Mertz chatted with historian Frank M. Snowden about his new book, Epidemics and Society, From the Black Death to the Present. Snowden discussed how epidemics continue to shape human societies and why civilization is unlikely to conquer them. This is Hell, airs Thursdays and Sundays at 10 a.m.
9: How certain were you that another pandemic would happen and soon? Or is this not a matter of accurately predicting the future as there are always and will always be pandemics?
10: Oh, right. Um, I, my answer to that is that I shared, if you, I don't want to take personal credit for great prescience because the truth of the matter is that since 1997, virologists and epidemiologists have been talking about our extraordinary vulnerability to a new pulmonary um, viral disease. And in fact, the director of the CDC, uh, Gerberding, Julie Gerberding, uh, testified by Congress along with Anthony Fauci in 2005 saying that it was if you lived in the Caribbean, it would be meteorologists could tell you that a hurricane was coming. They couldn't tell you the date or the speed of the winds. But they could tell you it was inevitable and that you'd be very foolish if you didn't prepare. And they said it was just like that with regard to uh, medical science, public health and virology, that they knew that a new pandemic threat was going to occur in the near future. They couldn't say how virulent it would be or the exact date. But they did warn the U.S. Congress that if we didn't prepare for it, then we were extremely unwise. Um, There were, in addition to that sort of warning, there were dress rehearsals, avian flu, SARS, um, uh, Ebola, MERS, etc. And so there were lots of warnings. And so I was actually expecting in my lifetime uh, a new uh, pandemic threat. I didn't realize, of course, that it was going to happen so immediately after I wrote my book, but I closed the book with this rather somber reflection that we really do need uh, to be careful and to take steps to be sure that we're ready to face a threat that's almost inevitable.
9: Well, if there are always pandemics, and you just said that it's almost inevitable— And I don't want to, if we want to use the Trump administration as an example, that's fine, but I don't want to just solely focus on the Trump administration response. But what explains any global unpreparedness for this kind of spread of disease?
10: I think uh, some of it is um, human nature, which is that people simply don't like to think about uh, this possibility. And uh, they also don't like to uh, budget for the measures that are necessary to confront it adequately, which actually are quite profound, as we're now learning to our cost. And so I think it's that combination. Plus, in the industrial world, there's a kind of hubris. uh, And we can see this Uh, in our own country, but also in Britain and in the European Union countries that, oh, well, this is something that we as a a highly developed and also very um, uh, scientific society were protected by bulwarks of science and uh, hygiene, education and civilization. And so it's not really such a serious threat. I think all of those are important features.
9: Do you think there there is a level of racism or a classism or white or Western supremacy within that thinking?
10: I do. Um, this is, I say, the industrial West, uh, which is to say that, and we saw this in the Ebola, uh, which was considered by industrial countries in the West, including our own, as something very distant because it was in West Africa and wasn't actually much of a danger to us. So I think this does express a colonial attitude, a first world attitude towards uh, the disadvantaged and the impoverished nations of the world, a kind of sense that, oh, well, they're health future is nothing like ours, we don't really need to be concerned with that.
9: You write that the interval between the SARS crisis of 2003 and the Ebola epidemic is illustrative. Immediately after the SARS experience, the World Health Organization produced a global influenza preparedness plan in 2005 to establish guidelines for country by country efforts, revised the international health regulations to include emerging disease threats as notifiable events, and devised its own rapid response capabilities. In the same year, the U.S. government issued a national state strategy for pandemic influenza and allocated funding for that purpose. Similar plans were drawn up by the Department of Defense, the Veterans Administration, the 50 states, and a series of major companies in the private sector. But as the emergency receded and fear subsided, citizens and governments reverted to business as usual. So is the public to blame for dropping their guard? Are we currently experiencing a massive daily, deadly outbreak here in the U.S.? Because the public did not apply the political pressure necessary to protect us. To what extent is this our
10: fault? I do believe we can see uh, that uh, we as the public, we are not entirely innocent and that uh, we don't favor much um, additional taxation or uh, that would be necessary to fund scientific research and some of the preparedness that's necessary, and we don't press our politicians uh, on this front very much. But uh, in a sense, uh, I think it's also the case that our politicians have not served us well by keeping us informed. I think the general public depends on politicians, the media, uh, public health officials to apprise them of... Uh, these dangers that are lurking, and so I think that uh, although the public does share in the blame, I think the primary responsibility lies a bit higher up in the food chain and uh, is an attitude by authorities more than it is of the general public
0: We debut a brand new song this week from local artist Reality Anonymous. Making its world premiere exclusively on Lumpen Radio, this is I Love Her Everywhere, the first single from the forthcoming LP, The Ghost Host.
11: And I know I speak for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I'm not comfortable with many of the chemicals they put in their water, or in the water, rather. I mean, Mm -hmm. I say their water because I have my own uh, reverse osmosis system Mm -hmm. carefully calibrated with a number of... uh, That's neither here nor there. Um,
8: I'm not comfortable with
11: what gets put in. Well, yeah. And I'm also equally uncomfortable with the ones they don't take out where the, the, the...
8: interesting R- rowan what what kind of what kind of things would you like would you like them to take out of, of the water
11: well so i am uh, aware i've seen many studies perhaps
8: you've seen these studies too i've seen many studies yes
11: of these trace amounts of uh, of medication uh, that work their way into the water systems are okay. detectable even in the tap water, just because they get recirculated. Um, and these are things like antidepressants, mm-hmm. um, antipsychotics, okay. um, even narcotics.
8: I see. Can Tra- trace amounts in in all bodies of water, especially ones that are near near high population areas. Right,
11: and there is being nothing to do- being done to address that issue. Um, and so when I'm preparing a, an admixture to go on a spirit quest, how do I know that these substances in the water, these, these psychogenic substances mm-hmm. in the water, aren't interfering right. with the psychogenic
8: substances I'd like there to be in the water that I'm ingesting? And Rowan, you're saying that these studies show that there are traceable amounts, not only traceable, but, but large enough amounts in, inside of these water supplies to possibly have side effects with other medications that you are taking.
11: Well, what I, the, the, what I do when I go on a spirit quest mm-hmm. involves, um, very cutting edge, bleeding edge chemicals, uh, that, that okay. are not fully understood right. or, uh, quantified in a manner. So I don't know, but I want to know that when I'm doing these research chemicals, if you will, that they are acting on their own and not being interfered with, with some other, some other variable, some right. other factor. You're, you're I, trying,
8: you're, you're trying to control your experiment and you can't.
11: No, I, I, I cannot in good faith write an accurate trip report based off of my experimentations with the number of psychotropics that Simon Amy puts out. If I think that the water that I'm drinking already has other chemicals in it that will right. be interfering. Broadcast every Saturday, 8, 10, 9
0: PM. The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Pietraski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpin' Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.